0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody! Welcome to Venture Stories by Village Global podcast. I'm here today on an episode of Health Stories, uh, and I'm here today joined by Joe Khan and Jay Desai. Joe, Jay, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having
0: us. Yeah, awesome to be here. Awesome. Let, let's start with some introductions. Jay, can you talk about what is Patient Ping and where you're most excited about in healthcare right now? Yeah, absolutely. So,
1: Patient Ping is a service that's been around for about five years. We notify providers. In real time, when their patients receive care anywhere. So if you're a primary care provider, your patient shows up in the ER, ping the primary care provider, make sure the care is coordinated, followed up on after the patient leaves. And so the thing I'm most excited about in healthcare is working on the interoperability problem. Patients get care from a lot of providers, and when those providers don't work together, care can be very dangerous and very expensive. And when you get the full team of providers around any given patient, getting everybody on the same page and everybody sort of working off the same information, you avoid a lot of redundancies and dangerous sort of events that, that keep people sick uh, when they could otherwise be safe and healthy and at home.
0: Well, cool. Joe, can you introduce what you're doing with Corona? Right and what you're yeah, talking totally about right
2: now? Yeah, for sure. So throughout the healthcare system, there are these embedded teams of care managers or care coordinators or community health workers. Typically, they're nurses or social workers tasked with guiding the most needy and vulnerable patients through the healthcare system. In the past, these teams have really been seen as a cost containment mechanism. There are these crazy power laws in healthcare where a tiny minority of patients account for the vast majority of utilization of services and costs. So, you know, one percent of patients account for twenty percent of spending. Five percent account for fifty percent. And these teams have historically been targeted at basically controlling those costs. Though that sounds a a little creepy, perhaps, they're actually super impactful and, and can make an extraordinary difference in the lives of patients. The really exciting shift that's happening in the industry right now is that these teams are basically going from being a cost containment mechanism to being a mechanism for expanding margin and displaying competitive differentiation for healthcare organizations ranging from hospital groups to payers. And what we're doing is supporting that shift by giving these teams software that augments their capacity and performance, largely through automation and communication tools.
0: Jay, zooming out a little bit, uh, can we start? What is care coordination? What are some of the, the, the problems in the space or what's required for, for effective care coordination? And how patient PatientPing addressing some of those core problems? Yeah,
1: so let me answer that question by helping you understand what Care coordination isn't so. If you are young and otherwise healthy, and you are playing soccer, or you you know fall off your bike and you break your you know you break your thumb, you go to the hospital, and there's probably one doctor that there that they know you need to see, and they're going to put a cast on you, and you're going to go home, and you're going to be fine. That you don't need a lot of coordination when that's the case, and so there there's a, a broad category of ailments and illness and acute events where you don't really need a lot of coordination. The people who do need coordination is when you are getting care from a lot of different providers. So if you're frail elderly or you're at the end of your life or you have cancer or you're in a sort of economically vulnerable situation where you don't necessarily have access to a lot of resources to get your care, so you may go to the emergency room as your primary care provider, because you may not have access to the those, uh, those clinical resources. It's for those people where coordination is really required. And I'll give you one really simple example of this. If you at some point in your past history have received, say, a CT scan, or you've gotten some vaccines, or you have some allergies, and that information is contained within one provider's system. And then you get hospitalized for some acute illness and you go to a different provider and they don't have that information. Well, now you have a gap in coordination, an opportunity for failed coordination. Or if there's good information flow between those providers, now you can make that a much more coordinated experience. And you avoid the thing that's probably most likely going to happen, which is if the patient patient goes to that new hospital, they're just going to run another test. They may not have the history. They'll ask you and you may not remember. They'll go through this sort of painful process of trying to get your medical records from the other provider and and you know make that episode of care while you're in the hospital a little better. So coordination is fundamentally about getting the information that's contained within a wide range of different people who all deliver care for any given individual, and using that information to make any given episode better. And it's not just information, but it is the the ability for people to communicate and and talk and work together, ultimately to get the patient. A much better outcome and, and safe and, and at home. Totally.
0: And Joe, anything you would add to that? And no worries, no not.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think everything that Jay's mentioned is, is really, really important, but I'd probably frame it as necessary and perhaps not sufficient for true coordination of care. If you think about being a patient who is deeply vulnerable to the healthcare system, may have multiple different diseases, may have many stressors. Are related to their, their lifestyle. Maybe it's in state, unstable housing, uh, access to food. It, it could just be that they're working many jobs or they have many dependents. Simply having all of the information in one place isn't really enough to appropriately guide that patient through the healthcare system. And so the. The other part of care coordination that I think is is key, and and this is what we're working on, is the interface through which those patients get access to that information. Basically, is the, the information that actually matters to the patient available? Is it conveyed to them in a way that they can understand? And is it actionable? And for many patients, having real human and someone that you can rely on and trust and can be there for you to help you respond to that information is is super super important as well, especially for the types of patients that Jay mentioned. So the, the frail elderly or low income folks who are dealing with many different chronic illnesses. Eric, this might be
1: useful. Is another way to think about coordination is to take it out of or care coordination to take it out of the medical setting and into the setting that we're all very familiar with, which is startups and you know and companies and work. Which is you know when I was a you know a founder of the company and it was just me in the very early days. It was very easy to do my job because I didn't have to coordinate with anybody. Then when two, I have two, two co-founders who kind of early on were part of the team. And then we had five employees at one point. It was like, okay, all of a sudden we now need to talk to each other and we need to share information. And there needs to be a set of productivity applications to make it such that, you know, we can all stay on the same page. But that's fundamentally what coordination is about. And. Taking it out of the work setting, you know, in sort of the white collar work setting into the patient setting and the, and the provider setting and the, you know, on the healthcare system side. The work is, is basically getting a group of people to work together uh, in service of somebody who is sick. And that may require much more intensive resources, in extending into the community setting, as Joe was saying. But then also wrapping around that person with, you know, call it the equivalent of an executive assistant, where you need somebody who's there all the time to kind of make sure everything is is on track and you know moving in the right direction. So I don't know if that analog is useful, but I I found it to be helpful to plan to focus so on think
2: Yeah. One maybe really practical example of this, we could give you a a hypothetical, which ties this all together. So let's say you have a low income patient and they've got chronic heart failure and there is some medication they can take, which is going to make a massive difference to them in terms of avoiding a heart attack or just keeping them out of the hospital, keeping them in their home. And for some reason or another, they continue to cycle in and out of the emergency department. And it happens every couple weeks. So they show up at emergency department A, they get treated, they get discharged from the emergency department. Someone gives them a bunch of free medication. They go home. And a couple weeks later, they've shown up at emergency department B, right? And this continues maybe with two or three different emergency departments. There are two really key problems here. One is, does emergency department B know that the patient showed up somewhere else? And the other part is, why is the patient continuously showing up in any emergency department? So where solutions like Jay's come in is in helping the payer potentially or each of those individual members identify that the patient is cycling in and out. Because if the patient were only showing up in one of those places and none of the others, it would only be on the cadence of a couple months each, right? Because they're cycling between many different options. So you wouldn't necessarily identify that this is as big a problem as it is. So that's key. Being able to share information and share learnings from one emergency department to another in terms of being able to actually help the patient is vital. The next thing, though, is that if you're not actually engaging with the patient and working really hard to understand their needs, you might never find ways to help them. So let's say that what's actually happening is that the patient is getting this free medication. It's lasting them a couple weeks and then they're faced with the really terrible decision of having to either purchase a refill for themselves or feed their kids. Maybe finances are so tight that that's literally the decision they're having to make. If there isn't someone in the system that that patient really trusts, who they feel comfortable being vulnerable enough with that they can say, look, I literally cannot afford these medications and I keep coming back so that you can give me a free refill, then there's no way to help the patient. So you've got these two fundamental problems, right? One is, are the different healthcare organizations coordinating with each other and she knows learnings? And the other is, is there enough trust with the patient? that you're able to surface the kind of insights which allow you to help them and empower them. And you can really boil down good care coordination to those two things, to the sharing of information and to the strength of relationships that exist between the patient and their care team. What is the crux of the difference in, in how you guys are approaching the problem? I think if you come back to that analogy, we're laser focused on that relationship piece. So once the patient has some kind of relationship with a care organization, how can we deepen it and increase the level of trust that exists? Whereas, and I, you know, I'm speaking for Jay here, I think patient ping is really focused on building infrastructure and the rails that will allow those relationships to exist. So you can imagine a world, for example, where a company like Karuna actually relies on patient ping as a fundamentally important source of data. So for us, knowing that a patient has arrived somewhere that we weren't expecting them is potentially a key part of being able to deepen the relationship with the patient of being able to surface insights to help them. Yeah. No, I
1: I think that's well articulated. Yeah. There is a, there's a ecosystem of providers. uh, And when I say providers, I mean, caregivers that extend many different institutional settings and, you know, and other settings. And so what I mean by that is there are providers who want to support patients care that may be part of, you know, an insurance company. There may be, Providers who want to support patients that are part of the primary care practice or the health system that you, or the hospital that you, you spend most of your time at. And then your family is an extension of your, your caregiver network. And our job is really in enabling those providers. And what Joe is building is, is really a broad extension and a mechanism to scale as sort of that caregiver support network. And so we would be the type of organization that, that our, our, his organization would be the type of organization that we would, we would uh, support.
0: There are a lot of problems in in healthcare. What made you guys tackle this one in particular, in in terms of it being a great business opportunity? Obviously, it's a really important problem, but there are lots of important problems. Why why is this such a great business opportunity related to
2: you know other areas you could have pursued in healthcare? And I know Joe, you were you know evaluating a bunch of different spaces. So there's this fundamental shift that's been happening in healthcare for quite a long time, where the way we pay for services has gone from being on a per service basis to on a per budget basis. So in the past, if you did a bunch of stuff for a patient, you would let the insurance company or the payer know by saying, hey, here are the 15 things I did. Can you pay me for each one of these? And you'd effectively make a fixed margin on each service, right? So you'd end up with plus 5% for this one, negative 10% on another. And at the end of the day, you end up with pretty much raised thin margins as a healthcare provider. And so when you're Operating in that world, you you basically only have two things you can do if you want to increase revenue, which obviously has a direct effect on your ability to innovate, to support clinical trials, to support the community. You either have to increase the base price of everything you do, i.e., increase the complexity, or you need to do more of the same thing. So, in the past, a lot of healthcare technology companies have really been focused on capacity utilization. How can we decrease no shows for appointments? How can we get more people onto an MRI machine? Per day? How can we make sure that the operating room is always being used? Or how do we make sure that patients are coming to us and not going elsewhere? Because at the end of the day, you need to do a higher volume of things and you need all of those things to be more complex. That's one of the trends that has led to healthcare becoming so expensive in the States that it now accounts for almost 20% of total spending every year. And in response to that, what payers have started to do, ranging from private insurance companies to the government, is say, hey, you know what, rather than paying you for each one of these things, we're going to give you a budget for one patient per year or for one episode of care related to a specific operation. And it's going to be up to you within some guidelines to figure out how to treat that patient. And so all of a sudden, if you are able to treat a patient really cost-effectively, you can make margin, right? Because you now have a, a variable margin business as a healthcare provider. And if you're really inefficient, that's going to come straight out of your bottom line. So you've gone from a world where you have to do more things and they need to be more complex to a world in which you need to be really thoughtful about the value of what you're doing, where is broadly defined as the, the outcomes that matter to the patient and the healthcare system divided by the dollars spent to achieve those outcomes. The, the catch here is that if you end up spending a lot less and are able, therefore able to make a massive margin today and the patient shows up at another emergency department, a couple weeks from now with a related issue, you're still going to be financially on the hook for that patient's care. So th- this could sound kind of terrifying, right? Like you might be concerned that healthcare organizations are going to start rationing care or cherry picking their patients. But the, the system is so inefficient today that the margin available, especially for these really high need patients that are well served by care coordination, is enormous. And, and that's the space that we're playing in. So we're saying, look, there's this fundamentally important role for building relationships with these high need patients, which in the past has purely been about cost containment, but in the future can be a massive source of competitive differentiation and margin. And so what we're trying to do is say, look, let's tap into this very specific moment in time where it's becoming really profitable to look after the most expensive, the most needy patients and make it possible to do that way more effectively with way more impact. So that's kind of how we picked that little niche of the healthcare system. And the other piece to that is that I've, I've been a patient for about five years now, and ex- I've experienced firsthand what it's like to be helpless and lost and to experience the fragmentation of healthcare. So there was a really strong emotional pull as well for kind of giving every patient the experience of having a, a doctor in the family or a trusted friend in medical school who could advocate for them and guide them. So that was kind of how Karuna ended up where it is. I, I think Jay, Jay had a, a much more uh, sort of first principles approach to figuring out patient thing. Yeah. And Jay, why is patient paying a more like out of all the opportunities
0: you could have pursued in healthcare? Wh- why care coordination?
1: Yeah. I mean, so to me, this is the most interesting, uh, I'm biased, but to me, this is the most interesting problem to work on in healthcare. This, this this topic of interoperability is one of many topics that folks are paying attention to or, or interested in, which is a very simple problem, which is if you go from one place to another place, your medical records don't come with you. And you kind of feel like you're starting all over again every time you go to a new facility. Uh, and that causes a lot of inefficiency and problems, problems for patients and the system overall. To me, there's three layers of interoperability. One is the patient. So I go to Stanford's emergency department and then and then say three weeks later, something bad happens again. And I decide I don't want to go to Stanford again. I want to go to UCSF, you know, a doctor that I have at UCSF. Well, the experience that I just had at Stanford and the information they collected is not going to follow me to UCSF. So maybe what we can do is give it so that the patient can download their information on their iPhone or wherever it is and have them take it from Stanford to UCSF. That's one layer of interoperability. The patient is the conduit of their medical information. Patient thing doesn't really play there today, and we may in the future, but that's not where we play today. The second layer of interoperability to me is you take a medical record out of the Epic EMR, which is the main electronic medical record vendor, and you move that medical record into a Cerner EMR, which is the next biggest electronic medical record vendor. So that's an important problem to be solving in interoperability where you just move the data from one place to the next. And it is, to a certain degree, what we do today. We add an intelligence layer on top of it when we move it from one place to the next. But fundamentally, we are about shipping information back and forth between the two. The most interesting problem to me in healthcare is taking all of that information from UCSF-CMR and Stanford-DMR and all the clinics in the community and the nursing homes and the home health agencies and the urgent care centers and the retail clinics, putting it in the cloud Sticking a kind of longitudinal record around that, basically creating a thread um, based on a single sort of patient identifier that pulls together the patient's entire care journey. Learning from that, you can put machine learning and artificial intelligence on top of that to learn from it, and then feeding that insight back into the provider and the payer there's this There's this data right now that sits within all of these fragmented systems that if stitched together... Could create enormous amounts of insight and knowledge in terms of how the system meets patients where they when they're sick, and it's, and it's not being captured and delivered and learned from in a way that would improve the system in a very meaningful way. So that's to me just a, a really important opportunity. It's a really important piece of infrastructure that needs to exist at the very at the very least regionally. Like it'd be great if there was something for the entire country, but if it ex- at least existed in San Francisco, where everybody in San Francisco was at least contributing to a common source of information uh, that had a full picture on where you were receiving care and how that care was delivered and what, what the quality of it was, then you could feed so much information back into all the different uh, workflows for providers to make it better. And I can give you a bunch of examples around that, but that's that's something that I'm extremely excited about because it doesn't it doesn't happen today.
0: Jay, if you weren't working on, on patient paying and you had to pursue another idea in healthcare or digital health space broadly, what other opportunities do you think are like Perfect for, for someone out there who's looking to build a company to, to tackle or, or that you might do? Well, I mean, I tend to be pretty, pretty focused
1: in terms of what I'm working on. But, you know, and, and, uh, but I do see what Joe's working on as a really interesting problem, which is to me, there's two really, there's two very interesting moments in healthcare. One is the first moment you feel sick. And, at that moment, there's an opportunity to deliver an extraordinary wealth of technology and knowledge and insights to make that experience better. Like, I feel sick, what the heck should I do? Right now, I'd say the company that owns that experience principally is Google. People go to the web and they go say, I feel sick, what's going on? There's Google, there's WebMD, there's, you know, now companies that are doing startups around this that are trying to sort of solve that problem and make it so that you get the best information. There's telehealth vendors that are saying, you don't need to go to the hospital, like, why don't we just get you you know, a video visit with the, with the doctor. There's Karuna that's trying to basically give you a guide and activate the existing guide, you know, kind of the, the care management infrastructure to be able to make that a much better experience. And like Joe said, having a doctor, like having your family doctor with you all the time. That's a really interesting place. And we don't really live there. The other, the other area where I think it's a profoundly interesting intersection between, you know, value consumption and value delivery to use the Amazon framework is when you first see a doctor uh, or you first see a, a, a provider where you say, hey doc, I'm sick. What, is, what should I do? Now they are using whatever information that they can access. Um, and a lot of times that is informed by Gestalt and whatever prior records you have from that, that particular doctor that you've seen. And if you could summon the world's information and deliver that to the provider so that the patient experience is much better, that's another really interesting intersection. We, patienting, plays in that space. And there's a lot of other applications that we don't Touch um, that we would I would love to be be sort of focused on, but if, if I was doing something that wasn't focused on the patient provider interaction, I'd probably work on the moment that the patient feels sick and trying to work on problems there.
0: How about you, Joe? if you weren't working on Karuna, what what other opportunities might you pursue slash recommend to the audience looking for looking for ideas to work in healthcare?
2: Yeah, so I think I think one of the hardest problems in healthcare is that the primary source of financing doesn't come. By and large, from the organization that's actually delivering care, which can make it a little difficult to innovate at times, right? So, you could do something which you believe is way more cost effective, for example, but you don't actually have the budget to make that a reality on your own. You end up having to rely on many other players in the system. And so, if if I were doing something else, I think I might want to play in an area where I could fully own the budget as well. So, starting up a niche insurance provider, for example, or some kind of subscription business where you basically start off with the budget as your revenue with the expectation that you're gonna give away the vast majority of it to make an amazing service. So you might decide to do fully vertically integrated centers for women's health and do that on a subscription basis of some sort where that could be some combination of sponsorship from payers, from employers, from nonprofits, but you're fundamentally given the breathing room you need to innovate really freely. So I think anything that has those structural properties where you can effectively make money day to day by delivering care, but own the ultimate source of funds is really, really compelling. The only catch there and and the reason we're not working on that is that there's a trade-off between having a really deep vertical impact and having a really broad horizontal impact. So you kind of have to say, look, I want to deliver a 300% 300% experience to 0.1% of patients? Or do I want to deliver a 80% experience or 70% experience to 80% of patients? And there's a motivational trade-off there in terms of what feels most important or most meaningful to you. So, so for us, it was really important that we could scale our impact broadly, even if it wasn't as deep as it would otherwise be if we were to be a fully integrated insurance company, for example. Uh, but, I, but I do think that there's plenty of space to innovate if you if you do decide to go the vertically integrated route. From a business perspective, what are the trade-offs between you
0: going deeply deeply vertical versus horizontal, as you mentioned?
2: Yeah, yeah. So if you go deeply vertical, there's just a lot of random infrastructure that you have to build, right, which ends up not being directly relevant to the thing that most excites you. So for example, if, if I wanted to build a Medicare Advantage plan like Devoted health or like Right Health or what Oscar is planning on doing in the MA space. The thing that might excite me is being able to deliver an extraordinary experience to the patient, but I'm still gonna end up having to maintain a accurate provider directory of all of the different doctors in my network. And I'm gonna get dinged and penalized and lose a ton of money if any of those profiles are marginally out of date. I'm still gonna have to have a claims adjudication engine. I'm still gonna have to do all sorts of risk adjustment work. So you end up having to invest a enormous amount of capital and human resources and doing a lot of things which aren't actually the thing that you're most excited about. So, so that's the that's the key trade-off there. But at the same time, you've completely owned the margin and what it gets allocated to.
1: The, the other aspect of that, I mean, healthcare is a, you know, it's a, it's a $3 trillion industry in the United States. And the vast majority of that money is consumed by an extraordinarily robust provider and payer incumbent ecosystem. So there's one view, which is create an entirely new sliver of payer or provider, because that incumbent ecosystem of hospitals and doctors and big health plans are just completely inadequate or, or don't know what they're doing. I, I tend to not really subscribe to that notion. I think they've become the way that they are, which is a function of the incentives that took them to that place, and it, it goes very deep in terms of the employer-based healthcare system that started decades ago during, you know, when our country was at war, and we needed to offer some version of health benefits, or employers needed to figure out a way to compete when there was wage wage caps, wage salary uh, salary increase caps while soldiers were, I, I don't, the, 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 the point being that there's deep roots that have, created the payer provider incumbent ecosystem that we have today. So choice one is trying to modernize that existing infrastructure through software, or the other is try to exist outside of it. I think that there's a massive opportunity to modernize the incumbent infrastructure. And a lot of patients have deep relationships with their doctors and their hospitals. And these are entrenched community, you know, sort of beacons within their region, like Stanford Hospital. Or, you know, these are places where you've had your children born and, you know, you just have long-lasting long relationships. The doctors live in your community. So the notion of, like, completely living outside of that ecosystem without paying any deference to what it is that they do, you know, I think is, is tough. Um, secondarily, even if you build a vertical stack, whether it's in cancer care or, kidney care or, you know, diabetes management, whatever sort of the vertical space that you go after, you still need to participate and collaborate with the existing ecosystem. And that's hard to do as, a, as an outsider uh, because of how deep the relationships are between providers. So to me, that, that is the biggest risk um, in addition to the ones that Joe described. And I think philosophically, a company has to decide which approach they want to take. Do they want to modernize the incumbent infrastructure, you know, with software and services or do they want to sort of play outside of it?
2: Yeah. And and both patient ping and Karuna have decided to focus on modernizing the existing infrastructure. Right. So we, we've,
0: we yeah. made that choice. Yeah. And what would have needed to be true for you to want to make the other choice?
1: It, 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 I think it's just a different type of, a different type of ambition. And I think a different level of fed up, you know, I think everybody's had a painful experience with their, hospital or doctor or insurance company that, you know, frustrates them. And I think if your mind goes towards, I get what they're dealing with. I want to make them better. You know, you're probably, that that was where my my mind went. If I felt hopeless in that aim and I wasn't able to get distribution or spread with our current products, um, we weren't able to scale or find a way to actually service those providers. Then, you know, then I may feel that I may say, let's start radically, you know, radically, different just exists outside the you know the, the ecosystem and and build something you know ground up uh, that does the full stack I, I don't know like to me it would be a pretty high threshold and it's less of a it's less of a pure software company And i i like i like building tech companies and so it's unlikely that i'd want to get in the business of hiring case managers or hiring you know clinicians uh and being in that in that in that line of business so i don't know like it i have to think about that some more but there isn't an obvious answer as far as what the threshold would be for bina to, to get into the full stack uh, I, you know there's there's a, there's an appeal to having the top line come from an insurance company and you've got a big budget that you're working off of which which is what joe was talking about and then you can sort of innovate with with the cash that a payer is ultimately putting you know betting on you to to be able to to build capabilities around but i don't know i kind of like the discipline that that's forced by innovating by real building software for people who are trying to do the same job that you would be doing outside of the, you know, outside of the existing ecosystem.
2: Well, one thing that, that I think is really special about patient paying and, and gets at this issue is, is that they've somehow been able to figure out distribution in a way that very few healthcare technology companies have. So typically you'll see health tech companies operate a hybrid technology consulting model. So they'll have some kind of technology. Maybe it's an enterprise data warehouse. Maybe it's an electronic medical record. And then they'll have armies of consultants and deployment specialists. And there'll be people who are certified to manage installs and provide process management and change management and all sorts of things, right? And and, and they actually end up making the majority of their margin on, on maintenance and upgrades and reporting and, and all sorts of things like that. And what patient things managed to do, which I think healthcare organizations, including mine, need to aspire towards is finding a way to gain massive distribution without completely disrupting the workflows that are so key within these healthcare organizations. So if you can find a way to deliver pure software, which creates immediate value and addresses a a truly burning pain point for these organizations, you win. And I I really can't think of maybe one or two organizations that have actually done that and when I say you win, I mean you win as a business, but you win for patience as well, right? If you think about the level of impact you have per time period, you're able to scale that impact so much more dramatically. And once you're through the door and you're creating value for you to add incremental features of services or to become a platform even is an obvious and relatively easy next step. So I think, I think that's, that's key. One one other thing that's onto the question of, like, what would it be necessary to feel comfortable working outside of the system versus working in it? I think there's a philosophical issue here around what kind of patients you want to serve. So on one extreme, you're really in the weeds, you're deeply integrated with everyone, you're working with existing doctors and clinicians and case managers and nurses, and you're, you're really embedded in the system. And on the other extreme, you only interact with the patient like you don't you don't interact with other labs no insurance companies no hospitals you build everything from the ground up and you get the patients to pay directly for the service so there's no sort of convolution of incentives where the money is coming from someone other than the person receiving care you can build a really pure and profitable business doing that but i think you end up serving the patients who are least in need of help right you you end up serving people who are overall very wealthy and have a ton of access uh, already And it's not to say that that isn't meaningful and doesn't change lives, it does, but it's a very different type of meaning than serving a patient who has three jobs, four kids, and two different chronic disorders, and is just desperately struggling to make ends meet. And I I think if it's important to you to serve the most vulnerable patients in society, you inevitably are going to have to get in the weeds and deeply integrate with the rest of the healthcare system. Exactly because of the relationships and the entrenched beacons in these communities that that Jay referred to earlier. Let's pretend
0: that we, us three, we're starting a
2: fund solely
0: focused on investing broadly in in the digital space. Joe, starting with you, and let's say you you were in charge, Joe, what would our thesis be or what frameworks would you use to either filter opportunities or to recommend, like, say to entrepreneurs, here's what you're you're looking for. Yeah. What what types of things would, would you want to invest in?
2: Yeah. So at the end of the day, you you basically have, and I'm basically stealing this advice directly from Jay, so I'll keep it short. You basically have two camps. You've got people fighting to get patients into the hospitals and making their money by driving complexity and volume, as, as I spoke about earlier. And then you have the community, which is fighting to keep people out of the hospital. And as it stands today, the group of organizations that are deeply invested in getting patients into the hospital is still much larger and represents a much bigger slice of the pie in healthcare. But over time, I think the segment that is dedicated to keeping patients out of the hospital and in their homes is going to be growing rapidly. And so both from a sort of hidden diamond perspective of, I think, where the big opportunities are and where the growth is going to be. And then also from the perspective of sort of doing the right thing and and finding work meaningful and enabling the type of innovation in healthcare that, that really changes lives, I would be focused on using that that filter as a, as a uh, first-order set sort of thesis for what the fund should be investing in, right? Is this an organization which is fundamentally dedicated to keeping patients out of the hospital?
0: Jay, how about you?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I'll offer three... Three possible organizing frameworks in addition to what Joe said as a, as a layer on. One is healthcare at the very top level of spending $3 trillion. The goal is to spend less and get more. It's not like e-commerce or ride sharing necessarily. It's not a category overall that we're trying to grow. Like there's institutional logic to try to or institutional sort of pressures to try to actually make it less for more. Sort of things like the, the, the analog that I could think of is like advertising. It's like we spend a lot on advertising, let's go up more yield per dollar of advertising. So that that to me needs to be an underpinning of 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 the you know broad ROI. And you can grow sub segments within healthcare and this is to Joe's point, which is you know subacute, you know, non-hospital care in service of reducing expensive costly care that's otherwise waste you know as a as a as a broad framework um, so that, that's kind of point one it's like the industry overall is contracting so the opportunity is to drive that path to, to move that path along faster the second i'll say is and i've, I've mentioned this to joe in the past is in healthcare it's you know two ways to build a big business one is small p times really big q the other is very big p time Small too. and I think there's a lot of companies that are in the you know mid-sized price, mid-sized number of customers that just don't get scale. Their point solutions, you know, they sort of battle for customers. There's long sales cycles, and if you can't either shrink that sales cycle to get a lot of customers by delivering an narrow point solution that can get distribution faster, or you just do really big bulky sales, like a lot of companies in this space have done where you get five customers and you're a hundred million dollar AR company. Like that's also doable. But I think you need to pick one of the two uh, and not be something that's sort of a middling. And then the, the third part of this is like, I'm a product person. I love product. I think we're patienting as a product driven company, but the best product in healthcare simply does not always win. And I think this is true in the enterprise setting broadly, but in healthcare, and I don't know if it's especially true in healthcare or not, like in the thought about other industries, but distribution go to market like how you're actually going to get it based on the regulatory and reimbursement dynamics and who you're selling to and what the customer dynamics are is like at the seed stage it needs to be part of the narrative it just has to be because it's so hard otherwise so i would i would really look for that and you know and a demonstrated capability to try to you know try to prove to, to, to for the entrepreneur to try to show how how they are going to be able to hack distribution
2: yeah i was just going to say it sort of boils down to can you get massive distribution and scale in a way that is unusual and somewhat unheard of in healthcare? And can you do it in a way that drives value in the industry rather than expansion? As I want to be sensitive
0: to your time. This has been a fantastic episode. Mm-hmm. Where can people learn more about Patient Ping and Gruna online and anything people should stay tuned for? PatientPing.com or follow us on LinkedIn. Yeah.
2: yeah, same answer. Follow us on LinkedIn or find us at www.meetkaruna.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. It's been a fantastic episode. Sweet. Thanks Thank so you. much, Eric.
0: If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc networkcatalyst network catalyst.